Hello, and welcome to the podcast for Valley Church of the Nazarene. I'm Ben Beckner, Associate Pastor. Senior Pastor Chris Yoakum and I are glad that you have tuned in to listen to our services and sermons. We would also love to have you join us in person at 228 Madison in Monta Vista, Colorado for our Sunday morning worship services that begin at 1015. We also have Sunday school classes for all ages that begin at 9 a.m. During the week, we have Wednesday night programming, including an adult Bible study, Valley Naz Youth for students in 7th through 12th grade, and children's quizzing for our elementary age kids. There are also various other activities and Bible studies that you can be involved in. Please visit our website at valleynaz.com and our Facebook page for more information. We have something for everyone for you to encounter God with others looking to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ as well. Again, thank you and welcome to our podcast. Hello and welcome once again to this week's podcast from Valley Church of the Nazarene. This is Pastor Chris Yoakum, and during December, our hearts are attuned to the season of Advent, anticipating the birth of Jesus. Week two is focused on the Prince of Peace. We will be coming out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 11, through chapter 9, verse 7. Thanks so much for listening. I invite you to stand and turn with me to Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 11. I remind you this morning, this is the word of the Lord. We're grateful for God's word. We believe in the inspiration. Fallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. May the Lord help us this morning. Hear the word of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 8, starting with verse 11. The Lord spoke to me with His strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And He will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, He will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And as for the people of Jerusalem, He will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in Him. Here I am, and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their God and their king. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, 
There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdened them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be, stained, be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, thank you for your word through the prophet Isaiah. I pray that you'd give us wisdom and insight. I pray that you would anoint and empower the preaching and the hearing this morning. I pray that we would gain a, a deeper understanding of what you were saying to us this morning. Bless us, we pray. Help us to make room in our hearts for your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, so we are almost to the Christmas time. What a wonderful, wonderful time that is. What a joyous time. Such a time full of hope and promise. But you know what next year is? Next year is an election year. And I always think it's interesting how the Christmas before the election year, there's this calm before the storm. There's this this sort of uh, feeling of goodwill, perhaps, for a short period of time, maybe not this year, but it's almost like you can get the sense of what's coming. And don't you love an election year, all the political ads, the mudslinging, the division, all of the news coverage? Isn't it such a wonderful, wonderful time? <laughs> Well, it seems strange to talk about politics on, during Christmas time, but you know what? This particular scripture is really talking about politics and really helps us to understand and get the right perspective when it comes to politics. And as we prepare, as we think about this time, as we think about the coming of the King, we're going to look at what Isaiah has to say to us here. Plato said this, he said, the penalty that good men pay for not being interested in politics is to be governed by men worse than themselves. That's probably pretty apt. So, no matter, no matter where you fall in the political spectrum, I think this is a word for all of us. And so, as we look at what Isaiah has to say here, it's very interesting but I want us to look real quick at, at our particular system. I've got up in the next slide, democracy, and the definition there, government by the people, a form of government in which the supreme power is vested in the people and exercised directly by them or by their elected agents under a free electoral system. Sounds really good. Um, 
But as we have seen, you know, the, the struggle that we have in the, even in our nation is, is who's going to be in control, right? Who's going to be in power? And I think that as we, as we think about the idea of democracy, I was thinking about the Scripture. I think there is a Scripture that, that where God tells us what He thinks about democracy. It's in uh, Psalm 2. Let's look at that real quick. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw out their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He rebukes them in His anger. He terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the trouble with the democracy is the same thing that's a trouble with every political system. If God is not at the center of it, it will be nothing but destructive, and God is going to be opposed. Our nation, in my humble opinion, was established to be a constitutional republic, and a republic is not really that much different than a democracy. It's still, you invest power in the people, but a constitutional republic is is a state where the chief executive and representatives are all elected by the people, and the rule, rules are set down in a, in a written constitution. The head of state and other representatives are elected, but they do not have uncontrolled power. What they may do is written in the constitution. And I think that better fits our system or what, or what we, uh, our nation was established to be. Some may argue that point. But you understand the dilemma that we're faced right now in our political system. The problem is, even if we have a constitution, with, with, if, if democracy has, has its way, oftentimes the constitution is, is uh, invalidated. And we struggle with having good judges. You know, if you have a, even if you have a good constitution, if you don't have good judges, the constitution will not be upheld. And we find ourselves in this tug of war in our p- current political system. And we wonder, you know, who, who's going to be the next president? We don't know. God knows. But more than anything else, I hope that we want God to be at the center of our nation. If, if God is, is our God, then we will be okay. Now, here in this particular Scripture in Isaiah, we don't have a democracy. And we don't have a constitutional republic. What we have is a is a monarchy that we're dealing with. A a monarchy is a political system based upon the undivided sovereignty of a or rule of a single person. The term applies to states in which supreme authority is invested in the monarch, an individual ruler who functions as the head of state and who achieves his or her position through heredity. Now, what we have here is is we have wicked King Ahaz, and we're going to get a little more into that. But the problem with a monarchy, you have have, uh, hopefully... Um, the idea that for however the, the king, the ruler is, is chosen, and you might have a good king, but then what happens when their heir, right, their child comes to, to, to the throne, may not be so good. 
And that's what we have here. We have the, the problem with the, with the idea of, of monarchy. The other thing we have here is a theocracy. Now, a theocracy is a government or of a state by immediate divine guidance or by officials who are regarded as divinely guided. I want you to, 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 to understand with me the tension of these two things, a monarchy and a theocracy, okay? You have a king who is the ruler, and yet in a theocracy, supposedly God is the one who rules. Well, what happens when you have a wicked king who doesn't follow God? And that's the struggle. And folks, it's the same struggle that we face here in our nation, right? We may say in God we trust, but so much is invested in our leaders, and will they follow God? And this is the struggle that we see here in Isaiah. So, I want us, want us to go back a little bit and take a little, little look through the Old Testament to understand how they, we got to the point that Isaiah is speaking about here. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at theocracy in Israel, Exodus chapter 20. And we're not going to read a lot of this, we're just going to kind of go through it briefly. But here's the very first thing that happens that establishes Israel as a nation. God delivers Israel out of Egypt. He had called Abraham and set promises to be a nation, but that nation grew up in Egypt and eventually became slaves in Egypt. And God comes down in order to fulfill His promise, He has to deliver His people out of Egypt. And so, when God lays down the covenant with Israel, this is the first thing He says in, in Exodus chapter 20, in verse 2, He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, shall have no other God before me. And so, this is the very first thing that God establishes with the people of Israel. He says, listen, I'm the one who delivered you. I'm the one who raised you up. I have delivered you out of Egypt, and now I'm making a covenant with you. And so, this is the, the, the establishment of the covenant and the, the establishment of the theocracy of Israel. God is going to be their God. They are, they are going to be a people, they are going to be God's people, and God is going to be their God, and this is the way it's going to be. This is the very first thing as the nation of Israel is formed. Now, turn with me to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. And I'm going to read this chapter, Judges chapter 2. So, at this point here, we have Israel who has come into the promised land, right? God has delivered them out of Israel, and over that long period of time in the desert, God has brought them to the promised land. And um, you remember that, that Moses was not allowed to go over, Joshua has brought them into the promised land. But this is what happens in, in Judges chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt, led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochum. 
There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the life of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who, they, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed the, and worshipped other various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook Him and served Baals and the Ashtoreths. In His anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as He had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, He was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it, as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed these, those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once, but by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Now, understand what, what the Lord is saying here. So, God, so now the, the problem is this is a theocracy. God is their God. They're to be His people, and they're to follow God, and yet the people cannot follow God. They're not willing to follow God. And you may have a generation that follows God, but then the next generation comes in, and they don't remember God, and they don't follow God. And so, God has to bring His wrath. He, he brings them and, and allows other nations to come and conquer them and take them and oppress them. And then God raises up judges to deliver them. And this is just a, this constant thing that happens with, with Israel at this point in time. So you have the promised land, you have covenant failure, and then you have judges. And I want you to understand that what, that what uh, is also happening here is God decides He's not going to take out all these other people from the nation, but He's going to leave them there to test Israel. Their gods and their religions, the things that they are going to bring, He leaves them in place to see if Israel will follow Him completely. So they become an a, a enticement and a snare to them to test them. Now turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so we have here in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is we have Samuel, who is really the, the last in the line of the judges, okay? 1 Samuel chapter 8, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah, and they served in Abersheba. 
But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at, at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. I also want to mention it before we go on. You remember that just previous to this, Eli, the priest, who had been a pretty good priest, his sons were wicked and God had to, had to kill them. And so you have the failure of the priesthood because you had a good priest, but then you, after him came bad priests. And here you have the last of the judges through Samuel. He's a good judge, but then his sons come along and they're wicked. And so now Israel is asking for a king. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, verse 6, they displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly that, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with the chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. Some will be assigned to commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters, be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to the officials and attendants, your men servants and your maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When at that day, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. The Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that, all that the people said, he repeated, he repeated it, to the, it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his town. And so we have here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we have the failure of the, of the priesthood because, again, you had a good priest, but then bad priest. Samuel was a good judge, but then his sons were not good. And so Israel asked for a king. And so we can see through this, this idea of this, of this theocracy is not going so good. Why? Is it because God isn't keeping the covenant? Is it because God is not doing His part? No. The problem is the failure of the people. The problem is the failure of the leaders. The people fail and bring God's wrath upon them. The leaders fail. You may have a good leader, but then you have a bad leader, and so you have this, this cycle that Israel goes through. And so at this point, when Israel asks for a king, we move into what I'm calling a theocratic monarchy. Turn with me to first. Chan for, um, let's go to chapter nine, verse thirteen. And you remember the story: God sends Samuel to anoint Saul as king. We have that starting in chapter nine, verse thirteen. Saul is chosen as king, and again, even though the people choose, they they ask God for a king. God is the one that chooses the king. God, God 
allow, you know, allows them to have a king. But again, you have this idea of a theocracy, and now we're going to have a monarchy, so we're going to have a theocratic monarchy. Saul chosen, but then Saul is rejected. In chapter 13, verse 4, uh, verse, in chapter 13, we see that Saul is rejected because he does not follow God. And so at this point right here, you have the failure of the monarchy as well. Saul is chosen. Just a few chapters later, he is rejected. Then in 1 Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13, we see God chooses David. So Saul is rejected because of his unfaithfulness. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to them, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in, and he was ready with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. And so we have God establishing David. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Saul is rejected as king. David is chosen. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's a beautiful, beautiful chapter, starting with verse 8. The first part of that is, is David, David wanting to build a temple. God does not allow David to do that. But listen to what God says about David. Chapter 7, verse 8 of 2 Samuel. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off from all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any, anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you, give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of, of men, with flogging inflicted by, by men. But my love will never be taken away from him 
as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before, before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now turn with me to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 36. So David's throne is established. God says it's going to be an eternal throne. I'm not going to reject you as I did, Saul. So we have this eternal promise. So we have this theocracy in Israel, but now we've got the monarchy established as an eternal monarchy, the line of David, who is of the tribe of, of Judah. Second Chronicles 36 is going to take us to the final, final scene of the backdrop of our passage in Isaiah. This is long after Ahaz. It says in the chapter 36, verse 1, And the people of the land took Jeho- Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and made him king in Jerusalem, the place of his father. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. The king of Egypt dethroned him in Jerusalem and imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. The king of Egypt made Eliakim a brother of Jehoahaz, king over Judah and Jerusalem in changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim, but Necho took Eliakim's brother Jehoahaz and carried him off to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. The other events of Jehoiakim's reign, the detestable things he did and all that was found against him are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiakim, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon, together with articles of value from the temple of the Lord. And he made Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked, hardened his heart, and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through His messengers again and again because He had no pity, because He had pity on His people and His dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised His words, scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against His people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and the officials. They sent fire to God. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the, pra- the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword. They became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the time of its desolation. It rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the Lord, the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. I want to stop there. So we see here a 
the monarchy falling apart. We see here the failure of God's people. We see here the failure of the kings of Judah, and we see the destruction of Jerusalem. I want us to see that at this moment right here in Israel's history, it was critical. It was a critical time. Turn with me back to Isaiah. It's a critical time, and this is where Isaiah is speaking towards the end. In chapter 6 and chapter 7, it's during the reign of, of Ahaz. But it's a critical time that Isaiah is coming and giving a word to the people. And the nation of Israel is at a critical point because God is coming and bringing a word to them saying, stop, change, repent. He's telling the kings, follow me. And yet there's a failure of the people and there's a, a failure of, of the kings. There are, there are some good kings, but then you have many wicked kings and toward the end they were, they were all wicked. And so we see this word to Isaiah. We see in, in chapter 1, or chapter 7, 1 through 17, the failure of Ahaz to trust, to trust and obey the Lord. What we have here is, is Ahaz is, 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 being, is doing wickedness before the Lord, and he has, God has brought before him the king of, uh, of Israel and the king of Aram. And basically what happens is Ahaz decides he's going to try to make a treaty with, with Assyria to help him. And God's telling him, listen, do not make a treaty with, with Assyria. Trust in me. But he's not willing to do that. And so we see in, in chapter 7, verse 18 through chapter 8, verse 10, we see the Lord's coming wrath. And folks, this is a word for our nation as well. As we look to our coming election, as we look to all that is going to happen, as we look to the direction our nation is going, we're at a critical point as well. Who's going to be the next president? I don't know. But unless we trust in God, folks. So I want to look for just for a few brief moments at, at what God says to the remnant. Last Christmas, I preached a message very similar to this. But I want us to see that the, the, the situation Israel's in is very similar to the situation that we're in as Americans. And the word to the remnant that Isaiah speaks is a word to us as well as Christians. And we need to take to heart. Even though we don't have a, a monarchy, the way that our... We feel the tension of it. Whoever becomes president is going to take our nation a particular direction. We need this word. So Isaiah chapter 8, the Lord spoke to me with His hand, starting with verse 11, hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The first word to the, to the remnant is, don't look for safety where the, Lord, where, the, where the world looks for safety. Don't fear what they fear. Regard the Lord as holy and fear Him. The word there for conspiracy is kind of a, not a great translation because we, we think of conspiracies oftentimes like conspiracy theories, but a better translation would be treaty. Ahaz is wanting to make a treaty with, with Assyria, but the Lord says, don't trust in Assyria because I'm going to use Assyria to bring my wrath. And just like God had allowed the other nations to stay in the land to test Israel, folks, this is a word for us as well. Don't make treaties with the, with the people of the world. 
Do not think that somehow we need to capitulate to the world and make treaties and, and agreements with them in order to somehow bring safety. Trust the Lord. Regard Him as holy. Fear and dread Him. That's the word to the remnant. That's His word to Ahaz. Ahaz, trust me. Do not trust in someone else. I fear so much, so often the church is so willing to go make treaties with, with the people of the world or with, with different groups or even politically in order to somehow have some short-lived peace. Don't do it. That's a message to the remnant. Do not look for peace where the world looks for, for peace or safety. Fear the Lord. Second thing in verses 14 through 15, the Lord will be a sanctuary for those who fear Him, but a destroyer for those who disregard Him. It says He will be a sanctuary, but for both houses of Israel, He will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, He will be a trap and a snare. Many will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Folks, if we trust the Lord, if we keep our trust in the Lord, keep looking to Him, He will be a sanctuary in the midst of no matter what comes, no matter what happens. Whoever, become, whoever is our, the next president, let me tell you, God will be a sanctuary for us if we'll trust Him, if we will trust Him. If we do not trust Him, He will be the one who we will be, we'll find destruction from Him if we do not have regard for Him. Verses 16 through 17. He says, bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob. Wait for the Lord. That is so hard sometimes to wait for the Lord, especially when things become difficult and, and things are so um, up in the air. We don't know how things are going to go. It's hard to wait for the Lord. But the word to the, the remnant is, bind up the testimony, set the law among my disciples. What he's saying is basically, we're going to be different because we are going to follow what God says. But we have to wait for the Lord. Verse 18, here I am and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. Bear faithful witness. The reason that we are still here, folks, in the midst of whatever comes, whatever happens in our nation, is that we can bear witness to the truth. Those of us who follow God and stay faithful to Him, we are just like what Isaiah says here, we are signs and symbols to our nation. We are a way that, that, that we, we hold fast and show something different, show that our God, we are trusting our God. And then listen to this word, folks, 19 through 22, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living, to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land when they are famished. They will become enraged and looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be, they will be thrust into utter darkness. Inquire of the Lord only. In this day when so many people have, have lost confidence in God's word, you see this, this sense which there's this New spirituality where people are consulting all different things to find answers, but folks, we don't do that. We consult God because He is the one who will not fail us. Everyone who looks to other things, they will find hopelessness. In the end, it will fail. And then we have chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, the greatest word of all, the King is coming. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. 
You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdened them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Folks, this is the greatest thing of all. The King is coming. Folks, why do we celebrate Christmas? Why celebrate Christmas in the midst of darkness? Why celebrate Christmas in the midst of seemingly everything falling apart and we don't know what's going to happen? Why celebrate Christmas? Because the King has come and the King is coming. And no matter how dark things get, no matter how leaders come and go, no matter how the the failure of us and the failure, failure of people, God will not fail. And He has promised that His King is coming. A theocracy and a monarchy, how is this going to work? The only way it can work is when God becomes king, God becomes flesh, and He becomes our king. That's what is being spoken here. The king is coming. Chapter 9, verse 6a, He will be the supreme authority. The government will be on His shoulders. Folks, on whose shoulders is the government going to be after the election? I don't know. Folks, ultimately, the government is on Jesus' shoulder. He is going to accomplish it. He is able to bring the, the, the peace. He's able to bring His kingdom. The government ultimately is on His shoulders. He is the supreme authority. Verse 9, 6b, this is what His reputation will be. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, right? It means He will be a good advisor. He, he is able to listen, give us good advice. Folks, we don't know what's going to happen, but you know what? Our King is a Wonderful Counselor. He is able to keep His people because He knows everything from beginning to end. He knows all of, the, all of the details. We can trust Him. He will be called Mighty God. He is powerful. Not only does He know, does, not only does He give us good advice, but He has the power to accomplish His will. He will be called Everlasting Father, which speaks to His durability. That's one of the issues. Even when you had a good king who was coming next, even if we have a good president who's coming next, well... The true king is an everlasting father. In other words, he is durable. He is never going to end. And he'll be called Prince of Peace, which speaks to the victory, his ultimate victory. He is able to put down all his enemies. Everything will be put under his feet, and he will bring peace. Verse 7a, his government and peace, will, will, it will forever increase. Isn't that a wonderful picture? His government will forever increase. In other words, it's never going to decrease. It's, we're never going to have to worry about Jesus' reign coming to an end or somehow the good things that Jesus brings, especially in eternity, ever coming to an end is going to be ever increasing. You know, right now in our country, the, the economy's good, right? There are some good things, but how many of us think that, oh, yeah, it's going to last? One thing we can trust with the coming Prince of Peace, His government, His peace will be ever increasing. He will be the fulfillment of the Lord's promise to David in verse uh, 7b, and the Lord will zealously accomplish this. And so what we have here in Isaiah chapter 9 is the greatest promise of all. In the midst of the turmoil that Israel was facing, 
in the midst of the, 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 the wickedness of their kings and the fact that God was bringing their wrath, this was God's word, word to them. Keep being faithful. The king is coming. God is going to keep his promise. Even in the midst of the failures, we're going to have one who is not going to fail. I'm going to close with chapter, chapter 11 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 9. Stand with me this morning. This is a little glimpse of the, the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lamb and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Folks, after Christmas, when we come into this election year, I have a feeling it's going to be a doozy. I just have a feeling, folks. Will our nation survive? Folks, when you go to cast your vote in November, make sure the vote that you're casting is for Jesus Christ to be Lord. Make sure that the vote that you're casting, and make sure that this Christmas this is the vote you're casting, and make sure that every day of next year, the vote that you are casting is for Jesus Christ to be Lord. Folks, no matter who the President of the United States is, Jesus Christ is our King. And I will tell you this, if Jesus Christ is your King and your Lord, it doesn't matter who the President of the United States is. If Jesus isn't your Lord and your King, it doesn't matter who the President of the United States is. Folks, there will be turmoil in these days until Christ comes back, our King of Kings. The reason we celebrate Christmas and that we have the great privilege of declaring this to the world, people will fail us, leaders come and go, but the true King who has come, we're celebrating it this, at Christmas, is coming again. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We're going to sing We Fall Down, which is a great, not really a Christmas song, but it's a great Christmas song. Folks, we willfully lay our crown, crowns down and that's my prayer for whoever is the president, that they would lay themselves before the true King of Kings because that is the only way anyone can be a good leader is to follow the one who's an ultimate authority. We fall down, we lay our at the feet of Jesus, the greatness of mercy and love 
at the feet of Jesus we cry holy 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 we cry holy 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 we cry holy 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 is the At the feet of Jesus, the greatness of mercy and love. At the feet of Jesus, we cry, holy, 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 we cry, holy, holy, holy. Cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Lord Jesus, we crown you king. We celebrate your coming. And I pray that you would help us as we wish people a Merry Christmas. Lord, help us to also get a chance to tell them why, why Christmas is merry, why there is hope, why there's so much turmoil in our nation. And the reason there's turmoil in our nation is the same reason there's always turmoil everywhere. It's because of sin and wickedness and darkness and Yet this time of year, we celebrate the one who came to conquer darkness and sin and to conquer us. We do lay our crowns before you, Lord Jesus, and declare that you are king. We look forward to the day when your kingdom will be manifest. The knowledge of you will cover the earth like waters cover the sea. We look forward to that day. But we declare that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are on the throne. You are the supreme authority even right now. You are the head of every president and king and ruler. You are the head of every supreme court and judge. You are head and supreme authority overall. And so we can have great hope. I pray that we would celebrate this time of year, and Lord, prepare us that we might be faithful in the days ahead, no matter what comes. We praise you and thank you. We pray you dismiss us with your peace. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. There is snacking yet. Join us.